Good morning, everybody. We are in the book of Matthew, Matthew chapter 24. Matthew 24, the title of the sermon is The Return of the King. And Jesus gives us incredibly good news here in Matthew 24. We will uh, get through verse 31 of the chapter, so we'll cover quite a bit of ground, but we won't read it all right now. We'll actually back up a few verses uh, to read for a little context. So we'll start reading in Matthew 23, verse 37, and we'll read through verse 3 of Matthew 24 to start, and then we'll work our way through the text. I'm reading and preaching from the NIV this morning. So in Matthew 23, starting in verse 37 from last week, we have Jesus saying these words. Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you who kill the prophets and stone those sent to you. How often I have longed to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings. But you were not willing. Look, your house is left to you desolate. For I tell you that you will not see me again until you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Jesus left the temple and was walking away when his disciples came up to him to call his attention to its buildings. Do you see all these things, Jesus asked? Truly I tell you, not one stone here will be left on another. Every one will be thrown down. And as Jesus was sitting on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately. Tell us, they said, when will this happen? And what will be the sign of your coming? and the end of the age. This is God's holy word. Let's pray. God, we confess that indeed your word is holy. In every sense of the word, your word is holy. The very word of God. Authoritative, living, active, inerrant, wonderful, and good. Thank you for it before us. Give us ears to hear it, Lord. Give us hearts to comprehend. Help us to, as we look at the text, see Jesus and his good news for us and toward us. Help us to hope in the coming of Christ and the great work of his redemption and the healing of the world. And Lord, as we pray about healing, we pray for those in Florida today. Thank you, Jesus, that you are sovereign even over the weather as you demonstrated. We pray on their behalf that, God, when things like this happen, you would do what you so often do. You would do miraculous things in saving and comforting and providing hope and comfort and mobilizing people and resources. And we would just pray, Lord, that you would calm the wind and the sea as you have done before. Thank you that you are the God who hears our prayers. Pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we saw there as we read the text, the last chapter ended, and we studied it last week, with Jesus pronouncing judgment on those in Israel, and in particular those in Jerusalem, who were and had refused to acknowledge his historic and current work, the historic and current work of God. Jesus says to them, I wanted to bring you in and for you to experience my love, but you were unwilling. And much of the drama of the book of Matthew has been that conflict unfolding of Jesus bringing the good news and religious leaders and others refusing it. And then Jesus pronounces that judgment that there would come a day where their house, 
meaning the temple would be left desolate. Not one stone would be left upon another. An explicit judgment that the temple would be destroyed, which we know from history, happened in AD 70 during a period of time where the Jews revolted against Roman rule. Much of the drama of the book of Matthew has also been this Jewish struggle under Roman oppression. And toward the end of the first century, it came to a boiling point and Jews revolted and it did not go well for them, unfortunately. And Rome came and conquered the city and destroyed the temple and scattered the Jews. So Jesus pronounces that judgment and then he's walking away from the temple toward the temple mount. And the disciples come up to him, perhaps alarmed by what he just said. And they point out to him the building, it says in our text. They they say, Jesus, well, look at the building that you're talking about. And we put that together with Mark's account and Luke's account. We know that they're basically saying, but Jesus, look how big and how beautiful this thing is. And indeed, I've been to Jerusalem many times. These in the surviving stones still are big and beautiful. But in that day, it was beyond description. Big, ginormous, white stones. Many, much of the temple coated, excuse me, in pure gold. And they look and they say, Jesus, but look how big and beautiful this worship structure is. And then Jesus pronounces that judgment. Perhaps startled by that, while Jesus sits on the Mount of Olives, so now he's overlooking the Temple Mount, sitting there after all those interactions he's had with the religious leaders, his followers come and they ask him three questions. When will this happen, the destruction of the Temple that he prophesied? What will be the sign of your coming? The second coming is clearly in view. And what will be the sign of the end of the age, the period just before Christ's return? They ask him those three explicit questions. Now, we understand in hindsight, looking back, that for them, these things formed in their mind a single complex web of events. They thought that they would be tightly connected, at least chronologically. In reality, we know in hindsight, they comprise a long span of history from the ascension of Christ until the return of Christ. And Jesus answers their three questions, and he answers them rather explicitly, but he doesn't give them any clear delineation about timing. To reveal specific timing in this chapter, in Jesus' answers to the questions, was not his goal. In fact, he says quite the opposite later in the chapter, the part that we'll look at next week, when he says these things from a few of the verses. About that day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. Therefore, keep watch, because you do not know on what day your Lord will come. So you also must be ready, because the Son of Man will come in an hour when you do not expect. Therefore, keep watch, because you do not know the day nor the hour. So it's very clear that Jesus' goal in answering these three questions is not to give us a clear chronology as to when this would happen. Quite the opposite. So we err and we misread what Jesus says here if we try to read it with the goal of determining the time. You know what the Bible tells us about the time of the return of the Lord? It tells us soon. And it tells us soon starting 2,000 years ago. So if it was soon then, now then, it must be really soon. Soon. 
And I understand the tension. We often feel like kids in the back of the car that are saying, Dad, when are we going to get there? Soon. The disciples were very much like that. Forty days after this, we see them in Acts chapter 1 saying to Jesus, Is now the time when all that's going to happen? Are we there yet? Soon, he tells them. So if a chronology is not Christ's goal in the text, what are Christ's goals in the text in answering the question? Well, there's three of them. Number one, he wants to warn his followers of the difficult days ahead. We'll see that in the text. Number two, he wants to comfort his followers with the knowledge of his sovereignty and his victorious mission and his glorious return, which is the main point of the text, his glorious return. And thirdly, he wants to urge his followers to live responsibly, faithfully, compassionately, and courageously in the age to come, the days that were before them and are before us. Now, we'll explore that third goal of Christ when we get to the rest of the chapter next week. For now, we're going to look at his first two goals, warning and comforting. So we're going to read verses 4 through 8 now where we'll look at some of the warnings that are given to us as, as signs, and these are general signs that Jesus gives in response to what the end of the age would look like. So starting in verse 4, it says, Jesus answered and said, Watch out that no one deceives you. For many will come in my name claiming I am the Messiah and will deceive many. You will hear of wars and rumors of wars, but see to it that you are not alarmed. Such things must happen, but the end is still to come. Nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be famines and earthquakes in various places. All these are the beginning of birth pains. So there, pause right there, Jesus gives us some general signs of the end of the age. And if you take it as a whole, it is a description of a world that feels out of control. Deception, spiritual deception taking place, the first thing he warns about. Wars and rumors of wars. International intrigue, kingdom rising against kingdom. Famines, natural disasters in various places. It feels like a world that is out of control. And it sounds like the news that you hear every night. These same sort of things are the stuff of newscasts today. But these same sort of things have always been the way that the world has felt since the time of Christ. And these things, I think, by design, could be seen in any time since Jesus uttered the words 2,000 years ago. It could be any time. Notice what he says, a few of the phrases there. He says, such things must happen, but the end is still to come. All these things are the beginning of birth pains. So such things must happen because what Jesus is describing here is a world in rebellion. He's talking about the effects of sin. He's not saying that these things will be his judgment. He's saying rather that these are the effects of sin and a world that is in rebellion to him. And if the world is going to live this way, then such things must come into a fallen world. But the end is still to come. In other words, there's more still. Don't try to look at those things and turn on the news and say, okay, we're right there. There's more to come. All these things, in fact, he says, are the beginning 
of birth pains. So he says to them, in effect, that there would be a long period of history characterized by events in the world that make the world feel as though it is out of control. And then he gives more general signs of the time, starting in verse 9. He says, then you'll be handed over to be persecuted and put to death. And you'll be hated by all nations because of me. At that time, many will turn away from the faith and will be betrayed and hate each other. And many false prophets will appear and deceive many people. Because of the increase of wickedness, the love of most will grow cold. But the one who stands firm to the end will be saved. Pause right there. Here we have a description of a period in history where it feels like truth is losing. The previous paragraph feels like a world out of control. This paragraph feels like a world where truth or the Christian faith is losing. He warns them and he says, you're going to be persecuted and hated among the nations because of my name. He warns them and says, many will actually fall away from the truth, from the faith. There will be apostasy. He warns them and, said, and says, rather than people living according to the truth, there will be an increase of wickedness. And rather than love abounding, there will be hatred. And there will be rampant deception. He brings up deception again. He describes a world where it feels like truth and in specific, the Christian faith is losing. Now, again, these are warnings of the way that the world would go because it's in rebellion to God. These are not ways that he would necessarily judge the world, but the way that the world would go, the effects of sin when we rebel against God. And we can see these things after Jesus utters them happening immediately And we could see them throughout the last 2,000 years having happened historically, and we could see them happening presently. They happen immediately. If you continue on from Matthew and you go into the book of Acts, which is a continuation of the story, the disciples were greatly persecuted, they were martyred. Many left the faith. These very things that Jesus was talking about begin to happen immediately after Christ's ascension in Acts chapter 1. And they had happened historically. By design, any age could look at this and say, wow, that's very much like our world and the way that it views truth and what happens to truth and what's happening worldwide to the Christian faith. Don't be lulled into not seeing it because you're in America. Because this does happen presently. The last century saw more Christians martyred for their faith than all the previous centuries combined. We feel so far removed from that reality, we don't even know that because we live in America. Thank you, God, for your mercy and your grace. But the last century had more Christian martyrs than all the previous centuries combined. Fact. So we see it happening presently as well. I know, you're reading this and you're saying, Britt, you said there was good news here. (laughs) It's coming. Now, we're going to skip verse 14 intentionally for a moment. We will return to it. And we're going to go to verse 15 where we have some more warnings. A little bit of a different nature. Before we read it, let me tell you this. 
Because these uh, events are coming from a different place, Jesus gives his disciples a different approach to them. Right, The previous events were the reverberating effects of sin, a, a world in rebellion to God and what it would look like. So what he told his people to do was to stand firm. Right, That's what he said to them. He said, look, the world is going to feel out of control and it's going to feel like truth is losing. So stand firm in your faith and you will be saved. Stand firm, though, was a direction as we face the effects of sin in the world. Now, these things are coming from a different direction, which is direct judgment of God. So he gives his disciples a different directive. He actually tells them to flee when this happens. Because we must endure the effects of sin in the world until Christ comes. We live in a fallen world. We're in the world, but we're not of the world. We will have to deal with that. But when God's wrath is involved, it is always God's intention that his believers would not have to endure that wrath because it's on, it's on unbelieving, rejecting folk. So he tells them to flee in the following verses. And this is where he's going to answer the question, when will the destruction of the temple be? So it says in verse 15, So when you see in the holy place the abomination that causes desolation, spoken of through the prophet Daniel, let the reader understand, then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let no one on the housetop go down to take anything out of their house. Let no one in the field go back and get their cloak. How dreadful it will be in those days for pregnant women and nursing mothers. Jesus is lamenting there. Pray your flight will not take place in the winter or on the Sabbath. Pause right there. So Jesus says that there will be something that is called the abomination of desolation. It was written about by the prophet Daniel. We see it referenced in Daniel chapter 9 and in Daniel chapter 12. One of the things that we have have happening in Bible prophecy is there are near fulfillments and far fulfillments. Immediate fulfillments and future, more future fulfillments. There are partial fulfillments and complete fulfillments. And we see that all through Bible prophecy. Even like the virgin birth is, is such a thing. So that's one of the ways that Bible prophecy is used in scripture. Near fulfillments, far fulfillments, partial fulfillments, complete fulfillments. Daniel may have had in mind about a hundred years before Christ when the Greek ruler Antiochus Epiphanes came and desecrated the temple. That's what's, when you see standing in the holy place, the abomination of desolation, the holy place, the Kadesh, Adashim, the, the, the temple. When you see the temple desecrated, you know this is a bad thing. This is flee. This is time to flee. And he's actually saying it's going to be his judgment. So Daniel may have had that in mind, but we also believe that he had the ultimate adversary, the Antichrist, toward the end in mind. And Jesus has here in mind the fall of Jerusalem and the temple in 70 AD when this conflict that I already told you about would happen between the Jews and the Romans and the Roman general title Vespasian would come in in 70 AD and he would desecrate the temple and that's when it would be destroyed. Another abomination of desolation. And Jesus says, when you see this thing, this is the judgment that I was speaking of. God is doing what God has always done throughout history. He's using unbelieving, wicked nations to even judge his own people when they need to be chastened and rejected him. That's hard, but we see that throughout Scripture. Jesus is talking very Old Testament type stuff here. He says, that's going to be judgment. You guys are my followers. I don't want you to endure my judgment. You didn't reject me. You've accepted me. So when you see this, I want you guys to flee. When you see the effects of sin in the world and wickedness running rampant, I want you to stand firm in your faith. 
Don't worry, I'm going to save you in the end. You'll make it. We'll make it. But here he tells them specifically when they see this judgment that they are to flee. And history tells us that the Christians in the city of Jerusalem fleed at the beginning of the Roman invasion and siege. And they weren't even around for 70 AD when the temple fell. They heeded Jesus' words and they split. Good move, boys and girls. But we believe that, I believe that Jesus is talking about more than just 70 AD here when we look at the next couple of verses and the language that he's using, that this is a case of near fulfillment and far fulfillment, partial com- fulfillment and complete fulfillment because he uses words in the next couple sentences that are far too big to merely be the short five-year war that happened in Jerusalem around 70 AD. In verse 21, he says, For then there will be great distress unequaled from the beginning of the world until now and never to be equaled again. If those days had not been cut short, no one would survive, but for the sake of the elect, his people, those days will be shortened. So I think that Jesus here is definitely referencing 70 AD. They asked him, when will the temple be destroyed? But he is also referencing a great tribulation. He says it's going to be a time like the world has never seen and will never see again. That couldn't be 70 AD. There's got to be a bigger fulfillment, a greater thing in picture here, the period of the great tribulation spoken about in the New Testament. Now, Jesus tells us these things and tells the disciples these things in part to sober their expectations. Because it's very clear that their expectations were this. And this is often our expectation too. They experienced Jesus. They came to Jesus. They heard what Jesus said. And then life began, they believed. And then life began to unfold. And they would have this thought. Shouldn't things be more different now that Jesus came and I'm following Jesus? Evidenced by the fact that again, 40 days later, they're like, is now the time, Jesus? Shouldn't things be more different in light of the kingdom coming with Jesus, me submitting myself to the king and following him? You hear this sometimes about people who just come to Christ or are untrained, untaught believers, and they think, well, I've put my faith in Jesus, so all my problems should go away. Can I get a witness from someone who all your problems went away when you follow Jesus? That's not the situation. Jesus here is trying to save them and us from disillusionment by telling us that there would be days like these. Sometimes in life, you just got to look around and say, Jesus told us there'd be days like these. Stand firm in your faith. And he says, but the end is not yet. You know, that's not just like a, it's not just his way of saying, gosh, it's going to be a long time, boys. We, We got that and girls. It's not just saying that. When he says, but the end is not yet, he's saying that these difficulties are not the final word. That's important for us to get. These effects of sin in the world, this judgment of God on the world, these difficulties are not the final word. Because in the end, Jesus comes and sets all things straight. Jesus, in speaking about these sort of things and persecution, said this to his followers in John 16. These things I have spoken to you so that in me you may have peace. Pause right there. Because you ain't going to find it in the world. 
Because there's going to be wars and rumors of wars. There's going to be kingdoms rising up against kingdoms. There's going to be hurricanes. There's going to be earthquakes. There's going to be famines. There's going to be deception. There's going to be persecution. You're not going to find peace in this world. And if you're looking for peace in this world, you will be sorely disappointed. Jesus says, I'm telling you these things so that in me, you may have peace. That's the point. In the world, you're going to have tribulation. Jesus told us there'd be days like these. And then he says, but take courage, I have overcome the world. So these warnings that Jesus gives, as stark as they are, are not meant to startle us and create fear. They are meant to settle us in light of God's sovereignty and God's promises of ultimate redemption and renewal. They are not meant to startle us. They are meant to settle us. Jesus wants to comfort his followers as the text continues, with the knowledge of his sovereignty, the knowledge of his victorious mission, and the knowledge of his glorious return. In verse 25, we'll see in a moment that he says, see, I have told you ahead of time. He says to his disciples, I am telling you that there's going to be days like these. So that when they happen, they would say, okay, Jesus told us, therefore he must be in control. He's sovereign. He knew. He warned us because he loved us. He's seeking to comfort us when he says, see, I've told you this ahead of time, with the fact that he is sovereign over all of it, even when the world feels out of control and it feels like truth isn't winning. Remember that he said in verse 13, but the one who stands firm to the end will be saved. He's wanting to comfort us with the truth of his victorious mission for us his victorious mission for us. He will not lose any who have put their faith in him. It'll feel like the world is out of control and like many are leaving and like truth is losing. But Jesus says, you stand firm in your faith in me. You will be ultimately saved. He will not let us down. He's seeking to comfort us with his victorious mission for us. Now we look at verse 14 for the first time and it says this. And this gospel of the kingdom will be preached in the whole world as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. Jesus is seeking to comfort his followers with his victorious mission to us and through us. And the second point there is victorious mission for us. Now he speaks of his victorious mission to us and ultimately through us. He says, listen, it's going to feel like truth is losing, but this gospel of the kingdom will be preached to the whole world, to every nation. Pantata ethne in the Greek, every single people group. This is why as reality, we're giving careful attention to reaching the unreached. Because Jesus said, this is also the way that it ought to go. The world is going to feel out of control. It's going to feel like truth is losing. But I want to remind you of my victorious mission to the whole world and through you. When he said this gospel of the kingdom will be preached to the whole world, he didn't mean other people. He meant that they would go and do it. He wasn't saying to his believers, hear me, Christian, this gospel will be preached to the whole world, but don't you worry, you don't need to do it. We'll get some special guys that'll go do it. All believers are to be engaged and involved in what Jesus said would be happening before his return, the gospel, the good kingdom, going to the whole world as a witness. 
And that brings us comfort because his victorious mission is not only for us, it's not only been brought to us, but it's also to go into this broken, crazy, scary world through us. That's called living out the comfort of Matthew chapter 24. Note again that in verses 6 and 8, Jesus says the end is still to come. All these things are the beginning. Earthquakes, famines, wars, rumors of wars. But here he says in verse 14, this gospel will be preached and then the end will come. This is the closest thing Jesus gives us to any sort of chronological cues in the text. This gospel will be preached to all people groups and then the end will come. Do you know what that means? That means that Jesus has given us, the church, a task to complete. This gospel's got to go forward to every nation. Everyone's got to hear and then the end will come. Now, that is not to say, because he's given us a task to complete before he returns, that is not to say that we then cause his return. Rather, it is to say that we have a cause to live for until he returns. Jesus is the only one who ushers in the kingdom. We don't usher in jack, beans, or squat. It's not that we would cause his return, it's that we have a cause to live for until he returns, the nation's hearing. So our focus, Jesus is teaching us, is not meant to be on the troubling signs, but rather on the victorious mission. And the mission, the good news about Jesus, confronts the signs. It confronts rebellion and sin and the effects of sin. And it brings righteousness and repentance and healing and wholeness. So we don't merely sit back passively and say, okay, I'm just going to hold on until it all blows over. We actually confront the signs of rebellion by taking the truth of the gospel to the nations. The signs are given to us to denote that God knows and told us there would be days like these where the world feels out of control and it feels like truth is losing. But the truth is, is that the truth is winning. The kingdom is expanding. Jesus is building his church. We live in America where we hear a whole lot of hullabaloo about the church is shrinking and everybody's leaving the church. And that might be true in America, but listen to me, Christianity is exploding in the rest of the world. Christianity is growing in the rest of the world more quickly than it has ever grown. Did you know that more people have followed Jesus worldwide in the last hundred years than in all the previous centuries combined? After the destruction of the temple at the end of the first century, one out of every 360 people in the world was a Christian. Now one out of every seven people in the world are Christians. Listen, the truth is winning. Jesus said, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. We are not to believe the hype of the truth and the church and Christianity is losing because Jesus doesn't lose. The truth, go ahead, praise God. The truth is expanding. But are we being a part of that expansion? As we saw in the video that Danny showed us, there are still 7,000 unreached people groups in the world. Are we being a part of the truth winning? Are we engaged in that? Man, we want to be engaged in that. We have taken on Paul's ambition as a church. Our ambition is the same as Paul's. 
My ambition has always been to preach the good news where the name of Christ has never been heard rather than where a church has already been started by someone else. So we want to take the gospel where it's never been heard before. We do other things. We also start churches in places like Honolulu. Thank you, Jesus. (laughs) But also places like the Arab Peninsula. Thank you, Jesus. Jesus said this in Matthew. The harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Therefore, beg the Lord of the harvest to send workers into his harvest field. That is what we are doing as a church. We have been given the great commission. We have a cause to live for until he returns. He has given us a task to complete that every people group would hear the good news about Jesus. Now, what's also inherent in the text is this idea that difficult world conditions and victorious Christian mission would coexist until the end. And that that conflict would like, uh, you know, reach more and more of a boiling point. As I said, in the last hundred years, more people have become Christians than in all the centuries combined, but more Christians have been killed for being Christians than in all the centuries combined. So the text tells us that these rebellious world conditions and victorious Christian mission will coexist. There will be a spiritual context of conflict and subterfuge, deception. So in verse 23, where we left off, Jesus says, at that time, if anyone says to you, look, here's the Messiah, there he is, don't believe it. For false messiahs and false prophets will appear and perform great signs and wonders to deceive, if possible, even the elect. See, I have told you ahead of time. We live in a spiritual context of subterfuge, of deception, of warfare. Deception is always a part of that. So we need to be aware of that. Jesus is making us aware. And then he wants us to know, without question, what the ultimate victory, his return, will look like. So that we don't have to think like, oh, maybe it was in 1917. Oh, maybe it was then. Oh, maybe he's out there. Maybe he's coming just spiritually, not in a world, real way. Maybe this and that. He says, don't do that. And he says, let me help you out, boys and girls. I will tell you exactly what this will look like. Verse 26. So if anyone tells you there he is out in the wilderness, don't go out. Or here he is in the inner rooms. Do not believe it. Four. As lightning that comes from the east is visible even in the west, so will the coming of the Son of Man be. Wherever there's a carcass, there the vultures will gather. Immediately after the distress of those days, the sun will be darkened, the moon will not give its light, the stars will fall from the sky, and the heavenly bodies will be shaken. Then will appear the the, the sign of the Son of Man in the heaven. And then all the peoples of the earth will mourn when they see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. And he will send his angels with a trumpet and they will gather his elect from the four winds from the end of the heavens, one end of the heavens to the other. So Jesus says, listen guys, you're not gonna miss it. Right? It will be visible and unmistakable like lightning, Right? Nobody sees lightning strike and they're like, what was that? Is it like a flashlight or something? <laughs> and like vultures, when there's a carcass, like everybody knows if you look up in the sky and there's 25 vultures circling, there's something dead there. It's like an unmistakable sign. He says, you're not going to miss it. 
It's going to be like lightning and vultures in the sky. He says, you're not going to miss it. It will be earth shattering and sky shaking. Heavenly bodies being shaken. He says, you're not going to miss it. It will be glorious and powerful and witnessed by the whole world. Coming on the clouds with great glory is a reference to Daniel chapter 7, where the Messiah comes to the Father and receives the kingdom in great glory. He says, you're not going to miss it. It will involve both judgment, all the people on the earth will mourn, and salvation. All the believers will be gathered unto him. So the main point of the text, the thrust of it, the climax of it, the most punchy point of it is, I'm coming back, you're not going to miss it. It's going to kind of be a big deal. And it's very clear from Scripture, throughout Scripture, that Jesus, when he returns, comes physically as he came the first time, visibly, evidentially, and busily. That is to say, when he comes again, he's got some business to do. When Jesus comes, he will be busy. Ushering in the fullness of the kingdom. The kingdom is one of those examples of a near fulfillment and a far fulfillment. The kingdom has come with Christ. It is present in our midst. And the kingdom is coming in its fullness to the whole world. It is partial fulfillment and complete fulfillment. It is already and not yet. It will be. And when Jesus comes, he's gonna be busy. The work of redemption is still unfolding. So here is a snapshot of some of the things that Jesus will be doing very busily when he comes again, what the second coming will entail. First of all, the devil will be fully and finally vanquished. Revelation 20 says, And the devil who deceived them was thrown into the lake of burning sulfur where the beast and the false prophet have been thrown. They will be tormented day and night forever and ever. The next time the devil messes with you, you mess with him and read this scripture to him. Secondly, humanity will be judged. There is an ultimate judgment for evil. Revelation 20 again. Then I saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it. And the earth and the heavens fled from his presence and there was no place for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne and the books were opened. And another book was opened, which is the book of life. The dead were judged according to what they had done as recorded in the books. The sea gave up the dead that were in it and death and Hades gave up the dead that were in them. And each person was judged according to what they had done. And then verse 15 says, anyone whose name was not found written in the book of life was thrown into the lake of fire. This is why we preach the gospel. Because judgment is real and hell is real. And Jesus came to save men and women and children from judgment and hell. And the way that we are saved is by getting our names in the Lamb's book of life. The Lamb is Jesus. The way into the book is faith in Jesus and what he's done for you because God loves you. And he wants to give you a hope and a future and abundant life and eternal life. And if we reject the Lamb's offer, and refuse to have our names by faith written in the Lamb's book of life, then there is only a judgment, back up a slide please Tim, to the books that contain our wicked deeds. And let me tell you, you don't want to have them books opened. Let's close those books, find an accountant, he's Jesus, close those books, new book, new ledger, righteousness of Christ credited to your account. So the devil will be vanquished, humanity will be judged, death will be defeated, Thank you, Jesus. 
again in Revelation 20, verse 14, the one that we skip says, then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. The lake of fire is the second death. There will be no more death when Jesus comes back and brings the fullness of the kingdom. Creation will be renewed, Revelation 21. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem coming down of heaven from, out of heaven from God prepared as a bride beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, look, God's dwelling place is now among the people and he will dwell with them. They will be his people and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain for the old order of things has passed away. He who is seated on the throne said, I am making everything new. And you better write this down for these words are trustworthy and true. Jesus is coming again to renew, to undo all the reverberating effects of rebellion and sin and wickedness and to make all things new. Our dwelling will be in glory, Revelation 22. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life as clear as crystal flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb down the middle of the great street of the city. On each side of the river stood the tree of life bearing 12 crops of fruit, yielding its fruit every month. And the leaves of the trees are for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be any curse. The throne of God and of the Lamb will be in the city and his servants will serve him. They will see his face and his name will be on their foreheads, ultimate neck tattoo, but on your forehead. There will be no more night. They will not need the light of the lamp or the light of the sun for the Lord God will give them light and they will reign forever and ever. Jesus returns, we will be in glory. The devil will be vanquished, humanity will be judged, death will be defeated, creation will be renewed, our dwelling will be in glory, and God's loving mission of saving people from every tongue, tribe, and nation will be realized. That Revelation 7 thing that Danny referenced earlier. After this, I looked, and there before was a great multitude that no one could count from every nation, tribe, people, and language standing before the throne and before the Lamb. They were wearing white robes and were holding palm branches in their hands, and they cried out in a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. The devil will be vanquished, humanity will be judged, death will be defeated, creation will be renewed, our dwelling will be in glory, God's mission will be realized, and Christ will be at the center of it all. Jesus is the main point of the text. He is the main point of history. He is the main point of the whole thing so that when he returns, this will be the reality. Then I saw a lamb looking as if it had been slain, standing at the center of the throne. That's Jesus. He's at the center. The 24 elders fell down before the lamb. Each one had a harp and they were holding golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of God's people. And they sang a new song saying to Jesus, you are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals because you were slain the cross. And with your blood, you purchased for God persons from every tribe and language and people and nation. You've made them to be a kingdom of priests to serve our God and they will reign on earth. 
Worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and praise to him who sits on the throne and to the lamb be praise and honor and glory and power forever and ever. Amen. So when, when you look at the fullness of what Jesus is saying in the text, his main point that I'm coming again and it's going to be obvious and it's going to be awesome, then we don't have to get caught up in all those other signs. It's not the focus. These things, Jesus and his glory and his coming are the focus. Those, gives us, those give us some cues. Those give us some tools. Those show us where we ought to stand firm, where we ought to flee. But ultimately, Jesus is coming again. So what people then should we be? We should be expectant people. If it was soon 2,000 years ago, it's really soon now. I'll just leave you with what it says in the book of Titus about this. This is where we end. For the grace of God has appeared that offers salvation to all people. It teaches us to say no to ungodliness and to worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright and godly lives in this present age while we wait for the blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all wickedness and to purify for himself a people that are his very own, eager to do what is good. May we be such people. Lord, thank you for these wonderful truths. Thank you, God. Help us to live, as we always pray, in light of the truth. Help us to stand firm in our faith in this crazy world. Help us to not participate in the rebellion, but to participate in the victory of your mission going forward. May we be men and women who live for your glory. May we be men and women who live expectantly. May we be men and women who are on mission because you have given us a cause to live for, and it's your cause. May we be such people, Lord. Teach us now in this time to pray. Teach us to worship. Teach us to repent. Teach us to surrender. Teach us to rejoice in the Lord's Supper. To bask in your presence and teach us to walk out these doors today on mission for the glory of Christ.